Well, as I said earlier, uh, this morning does bring us to our last worship service of 2020, and maybe, just maybe, our last worship service ever. As Christians, of course, we believe in a day that is coming when Jesus will come back to judge the earth. It's written in the Bible that when Jesus ascended into heaven, his disciples stood by watching as he went up, and suddenly angels appeared next to them, and they said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who is taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way you saw him go into heaven. And Jesus himself said, And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am you may be also. And in Hebrews 9.28 it says, So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. Uh, on yesterday, December 26th, I woke up feeling a little bit of the after Christmas blues. You guys familiar with this feeling? <laughs> I had eaten too much. All the stuff I was excited about and looking forward to was now in the rearview mirror. And it's a little bit like when you're at a restaurant and you're looking at the menu and all the different options. Oh, I could eat this or that or this. That feeling is Christmas season. And December 26th is at the end when you're like, have some buyer's remorse and the bill shows up. <laughs> this is the scenario. And I was thinking about that and I thought, you know, uh, really and truly, and I'm not just, this is where the Jesus juke happens, right? This is where the pastor in me comes out. But really and truly, and I'm not just speaking in a hyperbolic way, the greatest thing that Christmas points to is still out there that we should be filled with a waiting, joyful anticipation for. And really and truly, guys, it could happen today. Jesus could come back today. Uh, one of the great things about being an Advent Christian, of course, that Advent in our name is referring to the second Advent, the second coming of Christ. And our denomination was born out of this movement and the great contribution of our movement to Christianity in a larger sense was that up until that time, really, most people talked about in their evangelistic efforts, you need to get right with Jesus before you die. <laughs> But then came the Adventist movement, and they really changed the conversation from that to you really need to get right with Jesus before he comes back. Death is not at all certain. Some people will never know death in that sense. They'll be alive when Jesus comes back. The second coming of Christ is more certain than death. And I, that's something to think about. Maybe today. Today. Maybe it'll still happen in 2020. Wouldn't that be a great end to an otherwise horrible year? <laughs> but maybe it'll be 2021. Who knows? This morning, as we prepare our hearts for this turning of the calendar, this moving on into another year, I wanted to spend time in a few verses in the fifth chapter of James. I'm looking forward next week we're going to be picking back up our study through the Gospel of John. But if you want to turn with me this morning uh, to James chapter 5, we'll be in verses 7 through 11. And just to set a little bit of context, James, who is the brother of Jesus, by the way, 
Uh, he is writing this letter to Christians. He's kind of the head of the pastor at, of the church in Jerusalem. But something has happened to the early church in Jerusalem. Due to intense persecution, Christians in Jerusalem have kind of spread everywhere into neighboring communities, even places outside of the country. They've kind of had to flee the persecution of, of people who want to stamp the church out. And it's an unbelievably difficult time. Uh, a lot of poverty, heartbreak, broken dreams. Things are just not going well for people. And James writes this letter to um, strengthen his fellow believers wherever they might be. He's a, he's a pastor of the church in Jerusalem, but much like in this pandemic, he can't see many people in his flock, so to speak, face to face. They've scattered. So he writes a letter that can reach them wherever they might be. And in the fifth chapter, he writes this. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it, until it receives the early and the late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. As an example of suffering and patience, brother, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. James is uh, here employing as the centerpiece of this, these verses an analogy that would have made a lot of sense to his original audience in Aristic County, we kind of live in an agrarian society also. It's sort of everything is potato-based maybe. Um, but even more so in that culture where everybody would have worked directly in the work of farming, or most of the people would have. And so here he employs a, an agricultural illustration that would have been understood. There in Judea, in, the, in Israel, they had a very set patterns of rainy and dry seasons. And so farmers would have understood this, uh, this anticipation where you put the seed in the ground and then you have to wait for the rains to come and that it would bear fruit. There's a, there's a, a waiting, and he, he kind of compares that to the coming of the Lord. And there is a sense, I think, in the farmer, especially in those days, but even now, of course, where a farmer doesn't feel completely in control over weather patterns. And we saw this this past summer where we had this really epic drought in Aristic County. It was, the Aristic River dropped way down. It was really kind of shocking. But there was just a sense in which, what can you do? There's nothing you can do. You can't conjure water from the heavens. God alone can do that. There is a sense in which you feel out of control. But that is the way I think that he is talking about here, is that putting trust in God in a coming day. The farmer has to wait patiently. But as any farmer will tell you, as they wait and hope and trust for the crop, they are still busy. And the waiting that James is calling us to as we live in these days awaiting the return of Christ is also an active waiting. The work we often have to do is going to be in our heart. So we must give attention to our hearts, strengthen our hearts, lifting the gaze of our hearts to the coming return of Jesus. 
This is why James exhorts his brothers and sisters, establish your hearts for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Uh, one of the uh, Maranatha, you may have heard that term, it's transliterated into our Bibles out of the Greek, but in the early church it was, a, it was sort of a, a welcome and a goodbye. When they would greet one another, we know they would say Maranatha or O Lord come. It's a little bit like when you go to Hawaii and aloha is both hello and goodbye. In the early church, they would have said Maranatha upon greeting you and upon bidding you goodbye. O Lord, come. And I think there are, and I think this is just a really important part of what it is to be Christian. This is just woven into the spiritual DNA of a believer. This joyful anticipation, this confident expectation that this coming day will soon be our reality. And I think there are three ways, according to James, in these verses that a knowledge that the Lord is coming soon makes a difference in our hearts and which in turn affects how we live today. So that's what we want to do this morning. Let's look at three ways that a confident expectation that the Lord is coming soon makes a difference in how we think and feel and how that translates into how we live today. The first one that we see here in this text is this. It encourages us to endure suffering. In John 16, 22, Jesus says, So also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again, and your hearts will rejoice, and no one will take your joy from you. Or consider this verse in 2 Corinthians 4, 17. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. So Jesus says, right now you have sorrow, but take heart in this. I'm going to see you again, and on that day, nobody's going to take your joy from you. And then Paul, in the second letter to the Corinthian church, describes our, the, the things we have to endure, the suffering, the trials, the difficulties that are common to everyone in this fallen world, as a light momentary affliction. It's a temporary thing that we have to go through that is doing this mysterious work of preparing us for the eternal weight of glory. For the non-believer, this miserable world, which is sometimes good, but really in totality, is pretty dark. Well, it's as good as it gets. This is the very summit of joy for a non-believer. This world that is rife with disappointment, brokenness, disease, all kinds of, dis- of just horrible dysfunction is as good as it gets. But for the Christian, there is a day coming when every tear will be wiped away. James invites us to consider that coming day. He invokes the, uh, the image of the prophets and Job as an example of patience and suffering. I think James mentions both the prophets and Job's as examples of patience and suffering because they really represent two types of suffering that Christians can expect to experience in this life. They represent kind of the kind of troubles that are common to everyone who are making their way through this fallen world. Job, over the course of his life, or over the course of just a few days, really, 
Uh, it's a microcosm of human suffering. He experiences diseases, the loss of loved ones, betrayal, strained relationships, difficult marriage, stunning reversal of fortunes, loneliness, confusion. As Job himself put it, man is born to trouble as surely as sparks fly upward. It's common to us all. Anybody who lives any length of time in a fallen world understands the ubiquitous nature of these kinds of pain and disappointments. Jesus said in a shocking promise in John 16, in this world you will have trouble. Not maybe, but it's going to happen. But then he said, but take heart, I've overcome the world. So that's one kind of trouble. That's common to everyone. Prophets, however, represent a very unique species of suffering. And that's the kind of suffering that results because the world opposes Christ in you. Jesus spoke of this unique type of suffering in the Sermon on the Mount when he said, Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Do you see what Jesus said? He said, take delight in those sufferings you endure precisely because you are a follower of Jesus. And then he says, because great is your reward in heaven. He points us to that coming day. And he sums it up by invoking again the prophets, just as James did. The author of Hebrews had this type of suffering in mind also when he wrote this. In Hebrews 10, verses 32 through 35, he says this. The author of Hebrews is writing the Christians and uh, the Hebrew Christians, and he writes this. Remember those earlier days after you had received the light, that is, after you became Christians, when you endured in a great conflict full of suffering. Sometimes you were publicly exposed to insult and persecution. At other times, you stood side by side with those who were so treated. You suffered along with those in prison and joyfully accepted the confiscation of your property because you knew that you yourselves had better and lasting possessions. So do not throw away your confidence. It will be richly rewarded. This is the argument that the author of Hebrews hinges everything on. He says, great is your reward in heaven. It's a better and, an, and a lasting possession. He says that in verse 34. This is the, the knowledge that they have a better and lasting possession in heaven is what allows them to, with great cheerfulness, endure such things. It says, joyfully accepted the confiscation of your property. The many sufferings of Job and the prophets were not the end of their story. We know that. And whatever your trial is today, whether it's trivial or whether it's severe, these present sufferings and difficulties are not the end of your story. This is what James is writing about. James and the other New Testament writers invite us to live in the midst of life's difficulties with the end in mind. An eternal perspective lends joy 
even in the midst of difficult things in the midst of this life. Brothers and sisters, your suffering has an end date. There will come a day where it is no more. In Revelations 21, we read this, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will live with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. He who is seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Then he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. That's something you can hang a hat on. That's an amazing statement from our God. That is a profound statement spoken into a world immersed in all kinds of suffering. Write that down on your hearts. Or as James put it, establish your hearts. These words are trustworthy and true. Jesus is coming back, and he is bringing with him a day when all things will be made new. And this fallen, painful, frightening, and sad order of things will be no more. So James wants to help us bear up under the suffering that all people encounter in this fallen world, and that is the first point. One of the key tools given to God's people people to endure suffering in this life is the promise of a coming day of reward. And that's what James wants to remind his brothers and sisters about. It also encourages us, and this is point two, this is the second thing that a knowledge of that coming day helps us with in this life and changing the way we think and live. It also encourages us to reject sin. James says in verse 9, Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. James says in verse 9, Do not grumble against one another. And that, brothers, and what he's doing, he's talking about there is sin. In Titus 2, verses 12 through 13, talking about the grace of God that brings salvation, it says it teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age while we wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. You see, the knowledge of the fact that Jesus is coming back, what does that teach us to do? Well, according to Titus, It teaches us to say no, I'm sorry, Paul in his letter to Titus, it teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives. In 2 Peter 3, 11 through 12, it's speaking about the day when Jesus comes back. It says this, Since everything will be destroyed in this way, what kind of people ought you to be? You ought to live holy and godly lives, as you look forward to the day of God and speed its coming. Uh, how many, <laughs> I, was, uh, I was reading, I, I'm a great consumer of, uh, this is a little bit embarrassing, please don't judge me, but I love true crime podcasts. I don't know what it is, but when I'm driving in the car, nine times out of ten, if you're there with me, well not, if you're with me, I won't listen to it, but, <laughs> 
But if I'm all by myself, if you could be a fly in my car when I'm just driving down the road, I just love true crime podcasts. I don't know what it is. I listened to one recently, and it wasn't about the really gory stuff, which I really enjoyed for once. It was kind of a podcast about trivial crime. This particular episode was about people who butt dial and have accidentally butt dialed the police. (laughs) If you're not familiar with that term, butt dialing is when someone accidentally calls a number with their phone in their pocket. Usually, if you've ever received, been on the receiving end of one of these phone calls, it's pretty boring. It's just like a sound, whooshing sounds and a faint, muffled voice. You can't really tell what's going on. It gets less boring, however, when the number accidentally dialed is 911. It happens thousands of times every day and has actually become a real problem for police. But every now and then, the police strike the jackpot when crooks dial 911 accidentally in the middle of committing a crime. A couple years ago in New Jersey, Peyton Brewer and an accomplice accidentally pocket-dialed police after robbing a widow's house while she was away at her late husband's funeral. After answering the call, the 911 dispatcher could clearly overhear Peyton and his accomplice discussing their take, which included cash, jewelry, and a gun. One of them worried that they missed a lot because they didn't even get to go through half of the house. Quote, end quote. This was met with a declaration from Peyton, we're good, I got enough jewelry. Thanks to information gleaned from the call, police were able to track them to a nearby pawn shop where Brewer was caught selling the stolen goods. And that's the end of the story. (laughs) But this story does remind me of what James says. The judge is standing at the door. It reminds me also of Hebrews 4.13. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Brothers and sisters, the day is coming. It is almost here. And he is absolutely witnessing all of it. God is listening in on our lives. Jesus made a similar point in Matthew 24. Who then is the faithful and wise servant whom his master has set over his household to give them their food at the proper time? Blessed is the servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will set him over all his possessions. But if that wicked servant says to himself, my master is delayed... In other words, if he stops thinking about the soon return of his master and begins to beat his fellow servants and eats and drinks with drunkards, the master of that servant will come on a day that he does not expect him and at an hour he does not know. So when James says in verse 9 not to grumble against one another, he rightly recognizes that one of the reasons why this is happening is was that his fellow servants were saying to themselves, my master is delayed. So they were beating one another up with words and drifting into patterns of sin. And James shakes them awake with the warning, the judge is at the door. The master will return soon to reward the faithful servant and to punish the wicked servant. 
The, the author of Hebrews describes the future-leaning hope of Christians as being wrapped up in something that is better and longer-lasting than the things of this earth. So a knowledge of Christ's return doesn't merely help us say no to sin for fear of, uh, of punishment, but we are helped in saying no by the promise of a better and longer-lasting reward that comes to all those who deny themselves in, the light, in this life. This is actually God's reasoning. God's reasoning here is not necessarily or primarily do right because I'm bringing a stick. He leads off with do right because there is a coming day of reward. Don't lose sight of that. Don't disbelieve that. Don't satisfy yourself with this cheap, shabby trinkets and baubles of this world. There is something richer, fuller, higher, better coming, and that should capture your imagination and govern how you live. That's what Jesus meant when he said in Matthew 24, Truly I say to you, he will set him over all his possessions. God wants you to be happy, truly. He wants you to experience the deepest, fullest, most wonderful joy. And because he wants your best, he is absolutely opposed to you being satisfied with the fleeting pleasures of this world. Because he loves you, he is strongly opposed to us finding satisfaction in anything that we will regret 10,000 years from now in eternity. Our patience is rooted in faith. Faith in a coming day and a coming reward that makes all the shiny stuff of this world look shabby and small and pathetic. Christian patience is inseparable from faith because the world says this is all there is. The world says you better grab what pleasure you can because this is it. But the Spirit-led Christian says, no, the judge is at the door. This world is not as good as it gets. There is reward in denying myself some things that the world offers. The best is yet to come in eternity, and I will not trade that great thing for these cheap little trinkets and baubles. So that's the second thing. The knowledge of Christ's return and the reward coming with it, one, helps us endure patiently suffering. Second, it helps us say no to sin. And third, it encourages us to make the most of these days. Th this is a tricky one. This is one I think a lot of people maybe don't get to, but let's explore this idea that it helps us to make the most of these days. The two seem at first to be antithetical. Like if we're looking forward and hoping for a future day, don't we just kind of keep our head down and plow through, try to get through this ugly time to get to the weekend, as it were? But this is not what James encourages his people to think. This is not how he encourages them to think or pursue joy. James, I'm going to read this again. He says, Be patient then, brother, until the Lord's coming. See how the farmer waits for the land to yield its valuable crop and how patient he is for the autumn and spring rains. You too be patient and stand firm because the Lord's coming is near. I used to work with a guy who rut routinely arrived late for work. 
He usually came in about 15 minutes late. He did as little as he could get away with, and what little he did, he didn't do particularly well. When we would talk about work, he seemed bored. But when discussion turned to his plans for his days off, he would become more animated. He would spend his shift, as far as I could tell, dodging supervisors, playing games on the computer, trying to look busy, and making plans for the weekend. This co-worker of mine was all weekend, no work day, and frankly just a terrible co-worker. Now as Christians, we have a lot to be excited about. And I have to confess with a little shame that when I was a younger man, I was too in love with this world to truly look forward to Christ's return. But today I find myself continuously longing for it with a fervor and an anticipation that I have never felt previously in my walk with Christ. I just want it to be today so badly. Sure, there were moments, hours, and even days when I yearned for Christ's return, but today I live more or less in a continuous state of just wishing it were right now. I want the clouds to part and to see Christ come in his glory. I want to see every knee bow. I want to walk through the unmarred perfection of a new earth. I want to see the place that Christ has prepared for his people and to live in an unbroken relationship with God, creation, time, my fellow man, and an inner world that's not tainted with things like anxiety or doubt or loss. My mind is really and truly not even capable of perceiving how wonderful such perfect unending happiness will be. But my spirit directs my heart towards it as surely as just a compass needle points north. I've told you this story before, but at this point I just I always love this story to illustrate this fact. But when my kids were little, one time I was driving one of my kids to school and we were talking and um, something on the radio, it was bad news on the radio, and I said, I hope Jesus comes back soon. And my child said, I hope he waits until after Christmas break. <laughs> Which was a very honest kind of thing for a kid to say. And I think I felt the same way when I was a kid too. And uh, feeling the burden of a father at that moment to correctly reorient him towards the truth, I said, well, what's your favorite part of school? And he said, recess. I said, okay. Well, what would, how would you feel if you got to school today and you settled into math class and right in the middle of your instruction in math your name was called over the loudspeaker report to the office and when you got there your mom and I were there and we said we're pulling you out of school not for the day not for the week not for the school year but for always and we're going to go on a tour of the world's amusement parks. We're going to ride every roller coaster in the world. We're going to eat nothing but carnival food and have adventures and explore. Would you say to me, I hope, can't you come back after recess? No. No. You see what's happened to our fallen, sin-clouded hearts? That we can prefer something like Christmas or summer break or getting married or whatever to the coming of Christ. 
It's like saying, I hope you would come back after recess. That's crazy. It's crazy. It's owing to a lack of imagination. It's owing to a failure on our part to see Jesus accurately in his coming for what it is. That this world, all the high water marks of earthly joy, do not even begin to approach the fullness of what that will be. In fact, all those things, the joys of holiday, the joys of romance, the joys of growing up and attaining to new heights of things, all those high water marks of earthly joy are just given to us to stir within us a longing for that coming day when we will taste in the fullness all that those things in a very unsatisfying, imperfect way point us towards. That day is coming. But while we wait for that day, there is some stuff to do. Let's be very clear about this. I don't want to be like my coworker friend who was all weekend, no work day, and just a terrible coworker. There's stuff that needs to be done that we're called to do as the church in the midst of this time, and it wouldn't do to just kind of go into hibernation, <laughs> to just go into stasis as a church and wait for that coming day when we can pop up and say, yeah, we made it. Today is not the weekend. Oh, that Christ would prove me wrong. I would love it if today proved to be that day. Although we are not of this world, we are still in it. There is a way of being so heavenly-minded that we are of no earthly use. So there is work to do. And if I catch myself sometimes holding a similar attitude towards Christ's return and the celebration that will follow as my co-worker held for the weekend, it would tempt me to resent and neglect the present. Jesus was addressing this in his parable of the talents in Matthew 25. What did the returning master say to the one who buried his talent in the ground? You wicked and lazy servant. Oh, I don't want to hear that. I don't want to hear that. I don't want you to either. Soon and very soon we will stand before the throne. The judge is at the door. And we will enter into reward or judgment based on the decisions we have made about who Jesus is and what is his significance. The day is coming when we will no longer make decisions, not in the sense in which we choose right over wrong. We will no longer be able to choose Jesus over another. The day is coming when we will no longer be able to decide to embrace sacrificial service over a life of self-indulgence. In heaven, after that coming day, there will be no alternative to God and righteousness. Have you ever thought about the incredible potential and promise that is yours uniquely in these days? These are the last days when we can choose to deny ourselves and to choose of our own free will to embrace God. In heaven, there will be no rival suitors to say no to. These are the only days that you will ever know in which you have the opportunity to say no to sin and truly offer yourself up 
from a heart of willing, cheerful desire to be obedient, that you can be a living sacrifice. For foregoing things we desire for something of much greater worth. Just like the farmer in James 5, we have a day to look forward to, but the watchwords for today are wait, be patient, stand firm, don't be a horrible co-worker, delight in today and in the labor of your hands. The person who doesn't act on what he knows he or she knows to be right, you may not look at their life and say it's an ungodly one, but it is godless. Somebody who's, for whom God is at the center of their life will make his work and his purposes central to how they live and central to their passions. So I say, enjoy the challenges and pleasures that God has set before you. Be patient in the midst of suffering. Give God everything he wants to take and take from God everything he wants to give you. Our days are brief and numbered, so let's not waste them wishing we weren't here. Paul said to die is gain, but to live is Christ. And in light of the coming day, which is promised, trustworthy and true, let's live differently than other people in our society. The coming of the Lord is at hand. We're going to close out our service today singing one of the greatest Christian hymns I believe was ever written. And by the greatest, one of the greatest psalmists perhaps since David. <laughs> That's pretty high praise. Isaac Watts was one of the most prolific hymn writers of all time. By 1748 when he died, Watts had written over 750 separate hymns. Can you imagine 750 hymns? Arguably, his most famous hymn is Joy to the World. Interestingly, Joy to the World is now universally recognized as a Christmas song. But that fact would have really surprised Watts because he didn't write it about Christmas. If you notice the lyrics of the song, you will see nothing about shepherds, a manger, wise men, angels, or any other character or element we normally associate with the Christmas story. And the reason for that is that Watts did not write Joy to the World about the first coming of Christ. No, it was written in joyful anticipation of the second coming of Christ at the end of time. And for me personally, my personal favorite stanza from Joy to the World is this one where Watts wrote this, No more let sins and sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make his blessings flow, far as the curse is found. No more let sin and sorrows grow. There is a sense in which the promises of the kingdom can be described as already, but not yet. One day, all sins and sorrows will cease, but today we cry out as God's people, Maranatha, O Lord, come, bring that day. Joy to the world, the Lord is coming. So let us all subdue our inner world and make it fruitful. Let every heart prepare him room. Joy to the world, the Savior reigns. The Lord is coming. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, I just thank you so much for 
this wonderful truth that we can anchor our hearts to, that Christmas is not over. We are still living in joyful anticipation of the promised day when the clouds will part and Jesus will return in his glory and there will be a great cosmic reversal of fortunes. God, that all those who have endured suffering will suffer no more. All those who have put their trust in Jesus. That, Lord, if we have endured with great sacrifice for you in this life, we will enter into reward that is far more, that will make all that look like a light momentary affliction. Father, we pin our hearts to the coming day, and in so doing, we demonstrate our faith in your promises. Father, fill us now and all, in all the days between now and when Jesus comes back with a heart of faith-filled anticipation that would change the way we live. God, we look forward to that day, and we are so grateful that even now you are with us. That we don't have to wait for your presence. But Father, we look forward to the day when you will deliver us out of this reality into the coming one. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.